I'm turning today to the Gospel of John, chapter 21 and verse 1. The Gospel of John, chapter 21, verse 1. After these things, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias. And on this wise showed he himself. The first and greatest duty of believers comes out in the verses that are before us today. Now we've concluded the Gospel of Mark and we turn for a single study to the Great Commission as we find it in the closing chapter of Matthew's Gospel. And now I'd like to look at this similar event in the resurrection appearance of Christ. This is not the Great Commission in the final chapter of John, but is, it is uh, something that is virtually alongside it. It is what you might call the pastoral version of the Great Commission. The Great Commission rings out to the church through all the ages, and here, directed to Simon Peter, is a very personal pastoral aspect of it. It applies to all the disciples, it applies to all succeeding disciples. That is us in every age, true believers in Christ. It's a very special passage. Christ's pastoral great commission. After these things, he showed himself again to the disciples. And in verse 14 we read, this is now the third time that Jesus showed himself to his disciples. Well, just on a technical note, just to begin with, it was not literally the third time that Jesus showed himself to his disciples. What John is clearly saying down there in verse 30, 14 is this is the third occasion the third day, if you like, because uh, on the first day that Christ appeared to the disciples, he showed himself seven times in one day, and then a week later. And now this is the third occasion, the third time in that sense that Christ revealed himself. I cannot tell you precisely at what point, he also revealed himself to the 500 brethren at once and others who were mentioned in the record of Scripture. But this is the third occasion of his showing himself multiple times, sometimes on each one. There were many appearances, we think 12 at least, over the 40 days before the ascension of Christ. Now after these things, verse 1, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples. This time, the Sea of Tiberias. And then in verse 2, there were together Simon, Peter, and Thomas, Nathaniel, the sons of Zebedee, and two others. So seven disciples are together. And Simon Peter saith unto them, I go a-fishing. Verse 3, we just set the scene here before we come to the chief point. Why did he say that? 
Well, some people think that it was out of despondency. Christ has gone. He's been crucified, dead and buried. We've seen him, the risen Lord, but that's just an encouragement to our hearts. The actual mission is over. Christ is alive, but it's over. It's finished. Why, how can we do the things that he spoke of? He said to us, he breathed upon us. He said, as the Father sent me, so send I you. You are those who will go into the world and represent me and preach my name and gather in a great following and the church will be formed. He told them all these things. But how can this now be accomplished? Christ himself has gone. So some people think that that was the idea in Peter's mind as he returns to his occupation. But in actual fact, it's more likely, much, much more likely, that they're obeying the Lord. Not in particularly what they did, going fishing, but they're obeying the Lord in that they have returned to Galilee, as he's instructed them to do, where he would again appear to them. So now they are back in Galilee, no doubt in the Capernaum area, the area where they fished from the shore and ran their business previously. That is Peter, at any rate, and John. They've returned there, and they're waiting. It's a time of preparation. I've no doubt the record doesn't tell us that they've been praying, that they've been reflecting much. They must have been on Calvary and what Christ was doing. It's all come home to them. It's an atoning death. He's a spiritual saviour. After all, a saviour from sin, not a political saviour, an earthly deliverer from Roman occupation. They've grasped it. Why, they must be grasping more and more. By the time Peter gets up to preach on the day of Pentecost, it's absolutely crystal clear in his mind and in his heart. So no doubt they're reflecting. They're waiting for him in Galilee. I see in Peter and the others tremendous expectation. How will he appear this time? How will he reveal himself? I rather think that this is part of the fishing and the fact that they stayed at it all night. They didn't absolutely have to. They left their occupations. Their lives no longer depended upon this. They had to do something. I think they probably said to each other, though the record doesn't say this, it's just a personal assumption. You remember when he met us on the lake, when we were terrified? You remember how he appeared and he came walking on the water at night? Why day or night we're waiting up for him? We've returned to Galilee. We've sought solitude. We've gone on board our fishing vessels to get it. We'll fish and we'll keep our eyes open all night by being active, by continuing to fish. He may appear day or night. I rather prefer to think that this was a way of expecting him. And in those circumstances, the Lord appeared to them. 
And as a lesson to learn, even before we proceed for us, where should Christians be? Glued to the television? Perpetual entertainment? Rubbish soaps? Infusing into their minds worldly ways of thinking and acting? Where should Christians be? Certainly not in the pub, at the bar, somewhere where they can meet with Christ, withdrawn from worldliness and pure materialism and entertainment and pleasure. Of course there's scope for recreation and pleasure and so on. But always where we can meet with Christ and reflect on him and be used of him. And if there's any activity in which we're engaged where we would have to say, Christ could not meet with me here or Christ could not meet with me now, we're not looking for an appearance as the disciples were. That's what they were told to look for and expect. And I'm sure personally that's what they were doing when they said, when Peter said, I go fishing. This is a good place to be and to keep awake. Well, there were seven of them all together. And that night, they fished and they fished into the night. And all night, they caught nothing. And that's a preparation for the miracle for a demonstration of the power of Christ. God so overruled that for all their experience, once again, they caught nothing. It had happened before, during Christ's ministry. It's recorded in the Gospel of Luke. And then Christ is on the scene, and there's a great catch of fish. They caught nothing. There'll be a tremendous contrast here. Verse 4, But when the morning was now come, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples knew not that it was Jesus. They were some two or three hundred feet away from the shore. It was possibly a morning mist obscuring the view. They saw a figure. They did not know it was the Lord or their eyes were withheld from recognizing him. And in verse 5, the Lord calls to them, children, a familiar word, translated for us here as children. Might be better to translate it, lads, not men, lads, something more friendly. And familiar. Have ye any meat? The Greek is a little different. It's actually put the, the other way around. You haven't any fish, have you? The Lord wasn't asking the question because he didn't know. He asked it in this manner as a knowing person. You haven't anything, have you? No, was the reply. And then something very curious, verse 6, this stranger on the shore, 
says, cast the net on the right side of the ship and you shall find. And they're tired and exhausted and they've fished all night and they're experienced and yet they respond to a stranger calling out from the shore. And they complied without protest and they did it. That was of the Lord who somehow compelled them to respond. Or possibly, some of them began to wonder, is it the Lord? Is it his messenger? They cast, therefore, and now they were not able to draw for the multitude of fishes. Verse 7, therefore, that disciple whom Jesus loved, that's John, the author of this gospel, speaking discreetly of himself, as he always does, he says to Peter, it is the Lord. I think it was dawning before, but that's only an assumption. It is, almost, the emphasis there. It is the Lord. Now when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he girt his fisher's coat, for he was naked, that is, no doubt, stripped to his undergarments, and did cast himself into the sea to wade ashore, to get there more quickly. With alacrity he responds, with great eagerness to get to the Lord. And the other disciples came in a little ship, for they were not far from land, the distance is given, and verse 9, as soon then as they were come to land, they saw a fire of coals on the beach, on the shore, and fish laid thereon. It wasn't necessary to use the fish that they had caught. There was provision there already, and bread. And verse 10, the Lord says to them, bring of your catch, haul it near. And Simon Peter, verse 11, drew the net to land full of great fishes. That's very interesting. Great fishes. Very large fishes. The fish mainly in that lake are small fishes. Relatively small. These were large ones. I did read some little while ago of a 77-pound grass carp being caught, and that was considered an all-time record. But it's rare. And there were great celebrations, and it was in the newspapers and on the television, pictures of this great grass carp that had been caught in the lake of Tiberias. That's rare. But that's the kind of thing that is being collected here. Great fish. It's emphasized. This is unusual. In fact, the nets were not made for these larger fish. And there were so many of them that it started to pull apart and dismantle. But it didn't. It held. It managed to keep all of them full of great fishes. What a miracle. They had caught nothing. There's a large catch, 
and its unusual and great fish, 153. And the old writers used to draw lessons from every aspect of this. Now the scale of the catch was such. This was indeed the Lord. This was a miracle of the risen Lord. But the size of the fish, they remembered how he had said to them, you shall become fishers of men. What did it mean? That emperors would be converted, kings would be converted, generals, Roman generals and rulers. What was the significance of the great fish? No, said the old commentators, great sinners, great unbelievers, the most wayward of people, they're the greatest catchers. You will catch great fish. And we do today. Every now and then, in the goodness of God, someone is saved from a position you would never thought they would be saved from. I could never imagine that particular man, that particular woman, being humbled by the Lord and giving up their militant, aggressive unbelief and atheism or their lifestyle. Yet the great fish come in. In fact, most of the fish, when it comes to spiritual catches, are great fish. We're all great sinners in some way or the other. And that's the nature of the miracle. And for all there were so many, yet was not the net broken, strained to the limit, but nothing lost. Verse 12, Jesus saith unto them, Come and dine. And none of the disciples durst ask him, Who art thou, knowing that it was the Lord? What does that mean? They knew it was the Lord. They didn't dare ask for confirmation because that would be offensive to him. It was so obvious. It was the Lord. It appeared so. The works of Christ were manifested. It would be offensive to ask. That's the sense. But the words of Christ, come and dine. The great question is going to be asked. The great test is going to be applied to Peter. The significance of the passage is yet to come. First, come and dine. There must be a time of refreshment and fellowship. Isn't that like a service of worship? Doesn't our traditional service of worship follow that very pattern? We come and we commune with the Lord. We come, hopefully, in time for the first hymn, the opening prayer. We want all of it. We want to be part of it. We want to sing objectively the praise of Almighty God. We want to extol him and his majesty and his glory and his attributes in him number one. We want every prayer, worshipful prayer, 
every song of repentance and praise, every song, every hymn which affirms great doctrines of salvation. We want to commune with God in worship and adoration and submission and yieldedness and then have the spiritual lesson from God, the preaching when our hearts are ready, when we've worshipped and adored, when we've made our prayers and petitions. And it's like a service. Come and dine. And then, at the end of that, the great testing of the soul, the searching question, and the great pastoral version of the commission. It's wonderful, the very structure of it. Verse 13, Jesus then cometh and taketh bread and giveth them and fish likewise. And then verse 15, so when they had dined, Jesus saith to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonas, that must have cut into Peter before the question was asked. He denied the Lord three times. When tested, when questioned, with oaths, with swearing, vehemently, he denied utterly the Lord. And now when the Lord addresses him, he doesn't call him Peter. He doesn't use the name that he's given him. You will be called Peter. You will be like a rock. Upon your profession of faith that I am the Messiah, the Son of God, upon what you have said, my church will be built. You will be like a stone, solid and secure. He doesn't call him that privileged, honourable name that he gave him. Peter the stone, the steady one. He calls him by the name he called him before he was ever called, before he was ever made a disciple. Look at it here. Simon, no Peter, son of John. Simon, Son of John, that must have cut into Peter with convicting power. He put him back to his pre-disciple standing. Then the question, Lovest thou me more than these? What does he mean by these? Some people, he say, he's referring to the 153 fish. That's most unlikely. And the point that they make is that Simon has gone back to fishing out of unbelief and despondency. And Christ challenges him. Do you love me more than you love your job, the occupation to which you've returned, and your fish? But that's not what Christ means. Do you love me more than these other disciples? You said to me, if everybody else 
these disciples were to betray you, they may fall, they may renounce you and deny you, but I never will. Well now, what have you got to say, says the Lord? Do you love me more than these other disciples who have not denied me? Peter can't answer that. He doesn't answer that. In his reply, he leaves any answer to that question out because he's too convicted. It goes without saying. He's denied the Lord. He's done a terrible thing. When the Lord asks him the question, he uses a very strong word for love. Lovest thou me? Would you give yourself for me? It's a strong word. You love me enough, enough to sacrifice yourself for me. Peter has to answer with a very slightly gentler word. Lord, thou knowest that I love thee, but he uses a weaker love word. Thou knowest that I have the utmost regard and affection for you. But he didn't use the stronger word. Whether there's significance in the difference between the two words, I can't be absolutely sure, but there is a little difference. Do you love me entirely and utterly? Lord, you know I have the greatest affection and regard and esteem and admiration and acknowledgement and recognition of you, but it's not quite the same. Peter can't claim the big word. I love you enough to die for you, to live for you entirely. That's the question. He answers, and Christ says to him, feed my lambs. There's a lot of meaning in that. Feed my lambs. Preach the gospel to lost souls. Preach the gospel to my little lambs whom I'm calling and bringing into the fold. Tell them how to be saved. Always preach the gospel. There are many ministers who love the gospel and they don't preach it. Only now and then. Feed my lambs. There's another sense you can draw from this. Teach the rising generation the literal lambs. Open Sunday schools. Enlarge them. Engage as many children from the neighborhood of the church as you possibly can. Reach out to the lambs. The young ones, the youth. It's vital. It's part of your commission. Feed my lambs. Feed my young believers. Remember in your preaching, never be so sophisticated and elaborate and advanced that you've left out the lambs, the young in Christ, the ones who need milk rather than meat. There's a lot of sense in this. 
But there's an even additional sense. Feeding the lambs is a lowly task. Peter, you are never to put on splendid robes that show you off like a pope or a bishop or a great one. Oh, high church father, you're never to be on show, splendid, the biggest chair on the platform, the one that's decorated and ornate, the special person, the one of great priestly character. We're a kingdom of priests. We're all priests. You're nobody special and super. You're a shepherd, a pastor, a feeder of sheep. You reach down, you're lowly, you're among people. You're winning souls, you're doing groundwork. Feed my lambs, be a feeder of sheep. That's the pastoral side of the Great Commission. We hear the ringing cry, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel. Then there's the pastoral side. Feed my lambs. That's the ministry. And that's the ministry of all of us in every age of the church. But then you come to verse 16. He saith to him again the second time, Simon, son of John, unconverted person back to before you were a disciple lovest thou me Peter's answer isn't enough his grief for his sin isn't enough he feels it he doesn't want to mention it he ignores the question of Christ first posed but still, his grief is not enough. His shame is not sufficient. His repentance is not complete. He's treating this lightly. Oh yes, I denied the Lord. Terrible thing to do. Thank goodness it's all past. Now Lord, bless me. Wait a minute. Search your heart. Was it a lack of love? that caused you to stop short. You love me in the sense of admiration, recognition, wonder, amazement, affection. You love my attributes, but you didn't love me enough to suffer for me, to pay a price, to stand for me when everyone was against you. You didn't love me enough for that. The question then is going to be asked a second time. Do you love me? Is that how the Lord has to search our hearts? My heart? Your heart? I love the Lord, we say. How much? We're opening a new Sunday school branch. The question is going to arise... How will we staff it? How many earnest believers do we have in our large congregation and membership? 
who have proved the Lord, who love him in a sense, dearly, who believe in him and live for him, saved by the blood of Christ. We're opening a new branch. Are you coming forward? Are you saying, I used to teach, I no longer do, I can, I will, I will drive, I will help, I will prepare, I will clear up, I will teach. We ought to be able to open five or six more branches in needy areas. Could we? Can we staff them? The question comes to us. Lovest thou me, really? Oh, I haven't quite got the time. I'd have to order my life differently. I'd have to do away with some of the things that I do recreationally and for myself. Lovest thou me? It's a great test. But it came to Peter. Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. He saith unto him, Feed my sheep. Nourish the believers. Feed them and teach them. When you teach them, feed them properly. Look out for pastures for them. Teach them the doctrines. Teach them the promises. Teach them the trials. Teach them about the spiritual warfare. Teach them the duties. Teach them the encouragements. Show them Christ and his glory and his comfort so that they're lifted up to heaven. So many things on the syllabus. Am I teaching them? Am I including them all? Am I giving believers a kind of map so that they can navigate the scriptures for themselves? What am I doing? Do I post-mortem and search my ministry? Feed my lambs and properly. Verse 17, he saith unto him the third time, it's still not enough Peter's still a little bit too superficial. It's all too easy. Simon, son of John, lovest thou me? Now Peter is grieved. Because he said unto him the third time, lovest thou me? But it's necessary. And now I like to think, He really gives himself to the Lord, totally. That's what we need to do. The first time the Lord says, do you love me? Yes, Lord, I love your attributes. I love your work on Calvary. I love your redeeming love and your mercy and your kindness. The second time, do you love me? Have you really repented? meaningfully of sin. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, repentance. You've really felt ashamed and day by day you examine your heart and you repent of sin. 
Do you love me enough to truly repent? Third time, do you love me enough to order your life and to make your priorities the love and the service of Christ every day? Is it the opening prayer of every day? Enable me to pursue holiness of life. Witness for thee and worship and love of Christ. And he said unto him, Lord, thou knowest all things. Thou knowest that I love thee. And I think this time he really means it all. Jesus saith unto him, Take a lowly position, be a shepherd, a feeder of the lambs and the sheep. And then verse 18, Verily I say unto thee, when thou wast young, and so on, he tells Peter he's going to die a martyr's death. He may not say that to me, He may not say that to you, but what he does say is, are you ready to give me, Christ, your all? Everything. To leave behind the world. To know when to turn off the television. To know never to have it on on the Lord's day. It's the Lord's day. to love me with all your heart. That's the pastoral side of the Great Commission.